To my visiting hour special. I'm going to be going through the poem Visiting Hour by Norm McCaig. This is for people who are doing it as a set text, people who are doing a critical essay on it, or just people who want to listen to me talk about a poem where somebody visits a dying relative in hospital. Don't know why you would, but you never know. So yeah, I'm just going to go through the poem, going to talk about any of the important things, and hopefully it's informative and entertaining. Okay, so we're going to start with the first stanza. The hospital smell combs my nostrils as they go bobbing along green and yellow corridors. Now, instantly, you get the sense that the narrator's senses are being assaulted by the hospital. So, first of all, we've got the hospital smell combs my nostril. Combs is an example of personification because a smell can't actually comb because it's not a thing with arms or a comb. Um, so the personification there suggests that the smell is so utterly pungent and unpleasant that it's almost as if the smell is violently reaching into the narrator's nose and grabbing at the roots of his nasal hair, which is quite disgusting and would probably be very distressing. Now remember, as we're going through this, most of you, when you're talking about this poem, especially in an essay, we'll be talking about the emotions that are going through the narrator's mind and why this poem is such an emotional poem. So what we want to try and do is link everything back to the distress and the anxiety that the narrator is feeling in this predicament that he finds himself in. So we then move on to the nostrils as they go bobbing along green and yellow corridors. So they go bobbing along, that's an example of synecdoche. Yeah, synecdoche is when you refer to part of something instead of a whole. Now, in this case, he is referring to his nostrils instead of his actual body that would be walking along the hospital corridor. So the synecdoche is used here to focus our attention on his nostrils. And this is done to emphasise just how overwhelming the smell must be. And it's almost as if all of his other senses have been blocked out and that he's only able to focus on the smell, which is pretty disgusting. And then lastly, in the first stanza, we've got the green and yellow corridors. Now, obviously, that's a visual image and the colours green and yellow have connotations of vomit, pus, infection, sickness, whatever you want to say. It's all pretty disgusting. Um, this suggests unpleasantness and discomfort and it perhaps explains why he finds or is finding this visit so distressing. So there we go. The, the first stanza where the narrator's senses are explored and every single time it's pretty unpleasant, pretty nasty. Okay, so moving on to the second stanza, which is quite short, we've got what seems a corpse is trundled into a lift and vanishes heavenward. Now, straight away here, we get a sense of where the narrator's mind is at. He's clearly in quite a negative mind space right now because... Um, he says, what seems a corpse? So this gives us our first indication of what is on his mind, and that would be death. Um, he basically sees a person on a trolley, as you do in a hospital, and he automatically jumps to the rather morbid conclusion that it's a dead person. And this shows that he's clearly worried about his sick relative. Perhaps he's concerned that he's come too late and that she's dead. Now, 
to me, it's not a dead person because it says that the lift the lift vanishes heavenward. Now that implies that the lift is going up. Now, hospitals tend to store their dead bodies at the bottom in the morgue. So if it's going up the way, it's probably not a dead person. Anyway, we've also got the interesting word choice that of trundled. He talks about the corpse being trundled into a lift. Now, the lexical choice there implies a lack of care been shown by the hospital orderly. Now, this again adds to his sense of hopelessness and despair um, at this early stage of his visit because in his eyes, the people are not being treated with respect, the patients are not being treated well, and perhaps he's worrying about the well-being of his own loved one and that maybe she's not been looked after. So that's the first two stanzas done and basically we've seen a lot of unpleasantness already. We've seen the senses being unpleasantly explored. We've seen some of the, thing, the things that he's already seen not being so nice and the fact that he's got this negative idea of death preoccupying his mind. So I'm going to stop for a second while I drink a cup of tea and I'll get back to you in a sec, okay? <laughs> Okay, we're back for some more. Do you like the music? This is my own music this time. I actually made some music instead of the, the music that's in this app. Um, I made some music myself, so that's very impressive, obviously. Um, okay, so we are moving on to stanza three, which is quite short again. It says, I will not feel, I will not feel until I have to. Now, the narrator is using, well, the poet, who is also the narrator, is using repetition there to intensify the control that he's trying to impose upon himself. The poet's definitely making a conscious effort here to be detached, but he does show a recognition that he's going to have to face up to the situation eventually. So that allows us to appreciate that this is a very emotionally draining experience. Now, when he says, I will not feel, my presumption there is that he doesn't want to look upset for his loved one. You know, he's going to visit somebody who's already dying, the worst thing he can do is to turn up and look really upset. So this is another theme that we'll come back to later on in the poem. But to me, the poem is also about, it's, you know, it's about the difficulty of dealing with death and facing up to death. But it's also about how difficult it is to be the person who survives. Because obviously he's having to concern himself with how he looks to his dying relative. So he's worrying about her and he's also worrying about upsetting her and how he appears to her. So it gives us an idea of just how stressful and distressing this um, this whole visit must be. So we then move on to stanza four, where we see some new people. We get to see the nurses. So this is stanza four. It's nurses walk lightly, swiftly, here and up and down and there. Their slender waists miraculously carrying their burden of so much pain, so many deaths, their eyes still clear after so many farewells. So that's quite a much longer stanza this time so he's looking the narrator is looking at the nurses and he's clearly quite impressed at how well they're coping with things and there's an implied contrast here between him as a grown man not coping with the distress of visiting a loved one and the nurses who effortlessly deal with an endless litany of trauma so in the second line there, you've got the nurses moving here and up and down and there. Now, the word order there is quite unusual. It's kind of roundabout. It should be here and there and up and down. But instead, we've got here and up and down and there. So this mixed up word order highlights the ubiquitous nature of the nurses. Now, ubiquitous means they're all over the place at the same time. 
And the repetition of the word and in this line drags the line out a wee bit and it emphasises the distance covered and the speed of movement. So again, he's quite impressed at the way the nurses are conducting themselves. In the next line, he uses the word miraculously. He says their slender waists miraculously carrying their burden. Now, miraculously, there, that's a very interesting word. That suggests that he almost can't believe how well they are coping with things. And the word burden in the next line, that suggests just how much difficulty he thinks they are experiencing and they have to experience. Then going on with that we have their burden of so much pain, so many deaths, their eyes still clear after so many farewells. So we've got repetition of the word so there um, to emphasise the extent of the burden the nurses are being forced to carry. Now this strengthens the contrast with his own distressed reaction and again just emphasises how difficult he's finding it and emphasises how well the nurses are coping with things. So we're still on quite an emotional journey yet uh, here and we haven't even reached the, ho the hospital ward. We're about to do that in stanza four. So in stanza four, we arrive at the ward, okay? Now I'll just go through stanza four very quickly. Ward seven. She lies in a white cave of forgetfulness. A withered hand trembles on its stalk. Eyes move behind eyelids too heavy to raise. Into an arm wasted of colour, a glass fang is fixed. Not guzzling, but giving. And between her and me, distance shrinks till there is none left but the distance of pain that neither she nor I can cross. So again, that's an even longer stanza. Um, so yeah, so we arrive, Ward 7, full stop. Now, up to this point, there's been quite a flowing rhythm to the poem. There's not been a lot of stopping and starting. It's all been one long flow, as if to um, sort of replicate the journey that the narrator's making through the hospital. Then we have this pause, Ward 7, full stop. Now, this is an example of something called caesura, um, which means like a pause in the text. And it's quite unexpected and it signals a long pause here as if the narrator himself has come to an abrupt halt now that he's arrived at the ward. Perhaps he needs to compose himself for a minute because he realises that there's a very difficult ordeal ahead. Um, whatever the case, he then moves into the ward and he sees his loved one lying in a white cave of forgetfulness. Now this is a very interesting metaphor, isn't it? It's an effective metaphor because... Just as a person living in a cave is often cut off from society, living in complete and utter isolation, so too the loved one is um, cut off from the rest of the ward um, almost as effectively as if she was living in a cave. Uh, so that's an interesting piece of imagery there. Obviously the bed, the curtains of the bed make it look like a cave, but she is so far removed because of her medical condition, she's quite distant from him. And that's another thing that the poem is wanting us to understand, that communication becomes a problem when a person is dying. Um, now, I've told some of you that I've done this with that um, there's a quite a pretentious interpretation of this image as well. And that is the fact that when Native Americans um, used to die or when, when native americans were on the verge of death when they were old they were often sent off to live in caves on their own to meet their spirit animal and 
the suggestion is that Norm McCaig is trying to conjure up that image. I'm not entirely sure that he is. I think it's just the idea that someone in a cave is cut off from the rest of the world. Uh, whatever the case, you can read it any way you want. So moving on, we've got a withered hand trembles on its stalk. So there's a bit of flower imagery there. The word withered has connotations of something that is dying. And the word stalk suggests something thin and weak. So suggesting that she's quite weak and fragile looking. Now the flower image is quite interesting there because it gives us two ideas. It's the idea of his loved one being fragile and on the verge of death. But it also sort of suggests beauty. So the idea that he still sees beauty in her despite despite the fact that she's um, she's almost dead. Uh, and the word trembles, to me that suggests fear. You know, it suggests like a, a little flower stalk waving quite easily in the wind. But it also, the word trembles itself makes me think of fear. Anyway, we've got eyes move behind eyelids too heavy to raise. Basically, she is on quite a lot of heavy medication and she's unable to move her, her eyes. She can't even open her eyes to acknowledge um, her visitor. And then we've got this weird vampire image where it says, into an arm wasted of colour, a glass fang is fixed, not guzzling, but giving. So the vampire image conveys perfectly the suffering of the patient and the distress of the visiting man. Um, he knows that the IV you know, the drip that's attached to her arm is keeping her alive. But because she's all pale and pasty looking, it looks as if it's actually draining her of life. Now, this just helps us to understand how distressed he is at seeing his loved one in such a uh, such a state. It also highlights the invasive nature of a lot of medical procedures where you've got bits of glass and bits of metal going inside your body. So it's very unnatural, the whole process of keeping people alive when they're ill. Um, what have we got next? We've then got this quite poignant bit at the end of the stanza where it says, And between her and me, distance shrinks till there is none left, but the distance of pain that neither she nor I can cross. So he moves towards his loved one, perhaps to give her a kiss, perhaps just to be close to her because he loves her, and realises there that there is a distance of pain that neither she nor I can cross. He realises that her illness has created a sort of invisible barrier between the two of them um, that neither of them can cross over. She's alone on her side of the barrier with her pain and her illness. You know, she's out of it, basically. And he's alone on his side of the barrier with his distress at watching her in such a condition. So it lets us understand that this dealing with death, whether from the point of view of the dying person or the visiting person, it's a very lonely process and um, it's very difficult to communicate with somebody when they're in that kind of condition. So we've got one more stanza to go. I'm going to take a quick pause because I want to take another drink of my lovely tea because uh, my throat's getting a bit tickly and I don't want to sound husky for this last verse because some of you will think I'm crying, which I'm not because I've done this poem about 5,000 times. Okay, so I'll be back in a sec. <laughs> Okay, welcome back to the final section. Um, this would be stanza one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, so we're in the last stanza now. Um, so we're nearly finished, don't worry, it's nearly done. She smiles a little at this black figure in her white cave, who clumsily rises in the round swimming waves of a bell, and dizzily goes off, growing fainter, not smaller, leaving behind only books that will not be read and fruitless fruits. So for the first time we get the we get the poem from the 
loved one's point of view where it says she smiles a little at this black figure in her white cave so we actually see things from her point of view because it's like there's a kind of slight glimmer of consciousness here now it says a black figure in her white cave the black figure is presumably him because she's had her eyes closed and he's standing in this white hospital hospital environment and he probably does look like a hazy black figure to me it also suggests the, the figure of the grim reaper you know death because death is often personified as being this black figure holding a big scythe so it's perhaps that she's smiling because she's close to death who knows um anyway the figure clumsily rises because he's all emotional and he's a bit dizzy now and it says he clumsily rises in the round the round swimming waves of a bell now that round swimming waves of a bell is quite an unusual line it's an example of something called synesthesia which means muddled senses the words round and swimming they're visual words but they're being used here to describe a sound, okay? Because the word round, if you think about it, the word round is like a circle, something you look at. How can a sound be round? It can't be, but it is in this uh, this instance. And I think what Norma Cake's trying to do here is to show how dazed and confused the narrator is, so much so that his senses are just all over the place, okay? The word swimming perhaps suggests that he's crying as well, I don't know. Um, Anyway, so he gets up, and dizzily goes off. So he's feeling dizzy um, because he's so distressed and overwhelmed with emotions. Then it says, growing fainter, not smaller. Now that growing fainter, that's a double meaning as well because he's growing fainter in the way that he's literally growing more distant from the patient and he would appear more faint as he does so. But physically, he's also feeling more faint, as in close to fainting, because of his distress. So it highlights, again, the distress that the narrator's having to deal with. And then we've got this last bit here, the leaving behind only books that will not be read and fruitless fruits. Now, as most of you will remember, books that will not be read is a paradox and fruitless fruits is an oxymoron. They're both kind of the same thing. A paradox is basically just an extended oxymoron, an oxymoron being two things that kind of cancel each other out, two things that contradict each other. So in this case... Um, the paradox and the oxymoron is used to show that um, he realizes that he realizes the futility of his visit, that it's been kind of pointless because she is now beyond his reach. Right, he can do nothing for her. He's gone through the motions of the visit, but ultimately, this coming to see her has made, has made no difference to the inevitable outcome for his loved one. So he really does feel the pointlessness and hopelessness of his situation, which again would be quite distressing. So that's the end of the poem. Um, there's a few other wee things I could talk about just now. We've got the, the, I've kind of thought about some of the main themes that you might need to talk about if you're doing an essay. Obviously, you've got the idea of facing up to death, both from the point of view of the, the dying person and the surviving person, and obviously how you deal with those feelings. There's the idea that death is an unstoppable force, right? You can't do anything to stop death. You can bring presents, you can bring books, but you can't stop death, um, no matter how much you quite like to. And then there's also the theme of the communication problems that exist when a person is dying, because sometimes they are beyond your reach, because they're, you know, they're, they're half asleep, they're drugged, they're in a coma. And also because it's just, it is a distressing situation, and it's difficult to know what to say to somebody when they're dying. So, in the end, we are left with a question. And the question would be, is it perhaps less of an ordeal for the dying person than for the people that they are leaving behind? Now, in the poem, we never really get to find out what's going on in the dying woman's mind. So we can't truly answer this properly. But we do get a sense that 
this is a very very distressing and anxious experience for the narrator um, trying to keep a control of his emotions and then seeing just how poorly his loved one is and having to deal with all that it's a very very difficult situation um, we also learn through reading this poem that dying is something that we have to do on our, on our own even if we are surrounded by our loved ones now the poet is unable to communicate with the patient as if it's almost as if she's begun the process of dying already and this definitely highlights the need that McCaig feels he has to share with us, the need to communicate with loved ones while we can, and that it's really important we never leave things unsaid. So there's a lot in this poem. Um, it's quite a basic poem because it is just a basic wee story of a man visiting a loved one, uh, walking through the hospital, seeing his loved one, and then leaving again. So it's a very basic story. It's not like um, Ode to Nightingale or Death of a Naturalist which some of you have done which are a wee bit more weird and complicated this is a very basic straightforward poem but when you are analysing it whether in an essay or in a set text question just try and remember to think about the emotions that are evoked in reading this poem Right, the distress, the anxiety the difficulty of facing up to death and dealing with death okay right well I'm going to go and uh, put this all together hopefully it sounds good this is the first time i'm recording this using the actual podcast app and um it'll be interesting to see what it sounds like so hopefully this has been helpful if anybody wants me to do any more of these on anything else i've had some people ask me to do roman juliet i've had some people asking me to do more stuff in the cone gatherers if there's anything else anybody would like me to talk through because this is i, I like to think this is helping some people that they can sit and listen to me talking about this kind of stuff um, instead of reading about it, you know, if you're walking to school or you're lying in bed, you could listen to this and it's just a kind of, it's a nice, easy, lazier way of studying, isn't it? Anyway, I'm off just now and I will see you all again soon. Farewell, adios, goodbye.